Right, if you want to take your Bibles now with me, we're going to look at the Word of God together. We're going to go back to Revelation, and hopefully today we'll be able to finish Revelation chapter 14. We've been there for several weeks. Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be reading the second half of the passage, starting in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. So Revelation chapter 14 through verses 14 through 20. The Bible says this, starting at verse 14 in chapter 14. It would be good if I was in Revelation. Apologize, I was in another book. Here we go. Bible says, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle unto the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at this passage as we hear what God has for us today. Again, Lord, we just come before you and lay ourselves at your feet. We submit to the authority of you and your word and your spirit who is in us, Lord. We want him to, and we ask him to teach us, to guide us through this passage, to help us to understand the truth that you have for us today. So Lord, do your work in each one of us. May our minds and hearts be receptive to your message. And Lord, use me now as your instrument and as your mouthpiece. I'm just a weak human being, but Lord, you've chosen me to speak, and so Lord, speak through me. I need your spirit, so please fill me with your spirit, with your strength, and with your wisdom, so your truth might be proclaimed today that you might be glorified, that your message might be spoken, and we all might be challenged by your truth. And we'll give you the glory for this time, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been going through Revelation, and I figured, I know not everybody has been here for every message. Uh, I've been, because I've been preaching them, but um, not everybody has gotten every message. So I'm going to give you a quick review about the book of Revelation But as we get to chapter 14, chapter 14, what we see right here at the end, is a foreshadowing of the conclusion of the Great Tribulation. It's the end of the Great Tribulation period. And we're going to see how that plays into what is to come and what has come before. But real quick, let me just remind you a little bit about uh, what we have in Revelation. Okay, and to put it in context, I want you to understand what we're reading here in chapter 14 is a vision, like all of Revelation is, that John is receiving from Jesus Christ. And in this vision, what John sees is the final judgment of sinners on earth. It's not the final judgment where they're cast into hell for eternity that we read about earlier in chapter 14. 
This is literally the final judgment of Christ to the people on earth while they're still on earth. Remember, the tribulation is all about God's judgment. And it's about God's judgment against sin and on people who are sinners and unrepentant sinners. And so here is that final act of Christ in that judgment. And it's pictured as a harvest. And we'll get more details uh, later, but this will happen right at the end of the tribulation as Christ returns to earth to set up his millennial kingdom. We'll read about that in chapter 19 and 20. Okay, But let me just help you get caught up. Because um, Revelation has given us this string of visions that John has received from Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure we know where we are in this process. It's not all chronological, as we've seen. Okay, So in chapter 1, we had the, vi- the vision of the exalted Jesus Christ standing in heaven as the judge, ready to judge all nations. John gave that to us. Chapters 2 and 3 were Jesus' letters to the churches. In, in Asia Minor, and they were not just applicable to them, but they were applicable to all of us up to even this day and into the tribulation period. Warnings about things that are being neglected or done wrong, commendations about things that are do, being done right for the Lord. So that's chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 4, John is ushered into the throne room of God to witness the worship of heaven around God's throne of the Father on the throne. Chapter 5, The question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll of God's judgment to reclaim the title deed of the earth? Jesus Christ steps forward because he is worthy. He takes the scroll in his hand. And then in chapter 6, with that scroll, he starts to open the seals of the scroll. And each of those seals unleashes a judgment of God on the earth. The first four were the four horsemen. Remember? Uh, there was the false peace and the Antichrist. That was the first horseman. The second was war. The, sec- the third was famine. And then the four- fourth horseman came, and there was death to one-fourth of the earth's population. So we see God's judgments beginning here with these seals. Then the fifth seal, there's prayers from the martyred saints, the ones who were killed during the tribulation period, that were being offered from underneath the altar of incense in heaven. Okay, that was... The fifth seal, the sixth seal, was a great earthquake. Stars begin to fall from heaven to the earth. The sun and moon are darkened. And at the end of chapter 6, we have men trying to call to the hills and mountains to cover them because of the great wrath of the one that sits on the throne and of the Lamb. And they say, who will be able to stand in this judgment? Chapter 7, then, begins a proclamation from heaven about who will be delivered from this judgment. And we see the 144,000 witnesses that God seals and will protect through the whole tribulation period. The second part of chapter 7 is about God's deliverance of the martyred saints, those who were delivered through death. And death is God's deliverance for those who believe him. In chapter 8, it begins with the seventh seal. That's the final seal of the book that Christ opens. And immediately four of seven trumpets are blown by angels in heaven with their corresponding judgments being executed upon the earth. So we have a second series of seven judgments beginning with the seven trumpets. First, we have hail and fire mingled with blood, burning up a third of the trees and all the grass, destroying the lumber and agricultural industries of the Antichrist. Remember, God will take away what people make their gods. 
And if it's money, if it's commerce, if it's whatever they find on the earth, God's going to destroy it in the end times to show him who the true God is. So the first uh, trumpet is destroying uh, the lumber and agriculture. Second, a great mountain burning with fire is cast into the sea, killing a third of the fish and destroying a third of the ships. So now we've destroyed, God's destroyed the fishing industry and the shipping industry of the Antichrist. The third trumpet, a great meteorite crashes into the mountains, into the rivers, poisoning a third of all the fresh water on the earth and it killing many people. So now God has affected the water supply. Fourth, God causes the sun, moon, and stars not to shine for a third part of every day, casting darkness over the entire earth for those days. And then in chapter 9, we get to the fifth trumpet, when Satan is cast down to the earth from heaven, exiled permanently to the earth with his demons. And that chapter tells us that he carries the keys of the abyss, and he releases a horde of demons described as locusts, that swarm over the earth and torment men for five months. And the men cannot escape that torment, even through death. That is part of God's judgment. The sixth trumpet, and a demon army of 200 million strong appears and kills one-third of the population of what's left on the earth. So we've had one-fourth die in the first set of judgments. Now we have one-third die at the hand of this demon army. And at the end of chapter 9, it says, even in the midst of all this turmoil and suffering, men will not repent. You see the hardness of men's hearts all through Revelation. Chapter 10, then, begins a parenthetical section with an angel and the little book of God's judgment that, remember, John takes it from the angel and eats it, and in its mouth it's sweet, but as it hits his stomach, it becomes bitter. That is the believer's response to God's judgment. It's sweet because we know God is carrying out his judgment against sin, but in bitterness, we really don't want to see people suffer and end up in hell forever. And that's how John describes it in chapter 10. Chapter 11 then tells us about two special witnesses that God will raise up in the tribulation period to proclaim his truth and judgment to all people and who eventually will be killed by the Antichrist, even though they have killed everyone else who came against them with fire, The Antichrist will be able to overcome them and kill them, but they will only stay dead three days, laying in the street, and the third day they will come back to life and have their own private rapture as they go to heaven. And all the world will watch this happen. Chapter 12, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 7, we have the seventh trumpet that's blown. And all of heaven begins to rejoice and praise God at the blowing of the seventh trumpet because this is the final trumpet. It means the final set of judgments are about to be unleashed. But again, we take a step back because as that seventh trumpet is blown, then in chapter 12, we get kind of a big picture perspective of the struggle through history of Satan against God's people. Satan trying to destroy God's people. So in chapter 12, we have Satan's uh, attempts to thwart God's plan by attacking God's people and how during the tribulation that God will protect the remnant in a place of refuge. That's how chapter 11 ends. I'm sorry, chapter 12 ends. Chapter 13 introduces us to two human tools that Satan will use on the earth to accomplish his will during the tribulation period. We have the Antichrist who is introduced to us, that great deceiver, and then the false prophet, his sidekick, and both of them through the power of Satan will influence people through a one world government and a one world religion to worship Satan through the Antichrist. 
and turn from God. That is Satan's last attempt to try to turn people away from God. And he does it by force. But people choose who they will worship. And many will still not worship God. And so that's chapter 13. And then we get into chapter 14 where we are today. The beginning of that showed us the 144,000 witnesses who are overcomers at the end of the tribulation period. They're standing with Christ because they were sealed by God and they were faithful in serving him and trusting him. And then they're, they're contrasted with those who will suffer eternal torment, those who gave in to worship the Antichrist, the beast, their own preservation, whatever the world can offer them. That was their God, and so they receive eternal torment. And last week we saw that through all of this, there are those who will be blessed even in death because they were faithful to Jesus Christ. They were true persevering saints of Jesus Christ through the worst that the world and Satan could, could dish up against them. And they will be blessed even in their death. And so here we get to the end of chapter 14. And what we have is still a picture at the end of the tribulation period. But this is the time of harvest, Christ calls it. It is the time when the judgments will finish, when Christ will finish his work in judgment. He will harvest the earth, the world, those people who are unbelievers in judgment. And that's what we see here. Now, this last section of chapter 14 uses this analogy of harvest. It's, it's an echo of what we see previously in several places in Scripture. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Okay? That was the harvest of God claiming his own. And he was saying, basically, there's a lot of people who, out there who are ripe to hear the gospel, who are ripe to be brought into the kingdom of God, but we have very few people to spread that message. And so the challenge goes out to us as his followers. Are we going to spread that message? This harvest is the harvest of sinners in judgment. Okay, And I'll explain that to you as we get into this passage. So I want you to start in verse 14. And what I'm going to say, call this is the judgment of the tares. And you'll see why in just a minute. But this is the Christ, the victorious conqueror in verse 14. And it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud upon the white cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So we're introduced to the Son of Man sitting on a cloud. Now the cloud here is a reference to Christ in glory. Okay, He was taken up into the clouds from the earth when he went up after his resurrection. He will come back in the clouds to receive us as his church at the rapture. And here he's seen as sitting on a cloud. But it's all to depict his glory. And it uses this phrase, the son of man. This son of man, it says like unto, but in Greek when you read this phrase like unto, it's saying it is this person. So this is Jesus Christ that we're talking about. Not an angel, not somebody else. This is Jesus Christ in heaven, the glorified Jesus Christ, ready to execute his, his, his final judgments on the earth as the judge. But it uses this phrase, the son of man, which is interesting because that only appears two places in Revelation. When you see this, this phrase, the Son of Man, usually it's Jesus talking about himself, and you read it many times throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Mark. He uses this phrase to refer to himself as the Son of Man. The first time he uses this phrase is in Matthew 8, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he says he has nowhere to lay his head. So he's using this reference to himself as the Son of Man in a humble way, stating his humble 
place on earth where he gave up all that he had in heaven to come to earth as a man, not even a respected man, not a uh, authoritative uh, leader as far as the, what the world would recognize as famous and worthy of leadership, but just an average everyday guy. In fact, he says it was not just even average. He lowered himself to become a servant in Philippians 2. So he refers to himself as the son of man in that very humble estate-like way in Matthew chapter 8. Here, in Revelation chapter 14, this phrase, the son of man, is not talking about a humble servant, meek and mild like a lamb. This is talking about the judge of heaven coming to judge the earth. So it's a completely opposite connotation, even though it's the same phrase, same person. But we're in different circumstances now. It also says that he has a golden crown on his head. Now, we've seen crowns throughout Revelation. This crown, we would assume because Jesus Christ is the king, is a kingly or royal diadem. That's not the case. In the Greek, it uses a different word here. It's talking about a golden crown of victory, a crown that would be given to a victorious warrior or a victorious athlete in a contest. And so it signifies that Christ is victorious already in the battle. What battle? The battle over sin. He's conquered sin already in his death and resurrection, the power of sin. Here, he will judge sin. And so he comes as the victorious warrior, if you will, or the victorious general in this battle against sin. And here is his final act to annihilate it before he sets up his kingdom. And that's the picture that we see of Jesus Christ right away here in chapter 14. One more thing is said about him. You get this glorified, kingly picture of Jesus Christ, this magnificent, glorified judge, and in his hand is a sickle. It's a tool of a farmer. Now, I don't know how many of you are old enough to have been able to use a sickle or, you know, have been, had the experience of it. A sickle is a reaping instrument. It's a tool that farmers way back when used, all the way back, obviously, in biblical times. But it's got a long curved handle, and it's got kind of a handle at the top and a handle in the middle. And at the bottom is a a long curved blade, very sharp. And they would take that, and they would sweep it across the ground, and it would cut off the plants right at the root. And then they would lay over, and they would come and gather those up and put them together in sheaves. So this is that picture of Jesus as the judge as the victorious conqueror, and he's got this sickle in his hand ready for the final harvest. That's what, what John re- records for us. It goes in verse 15, he goes on, and he describes what's about to happen. He says, Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So as John sees Jesus Christ, on the cloud, ready to start reaping, an angel comes from the temple of God. Now, where's the temple? At this point, we're not talking about the temple on earth. We're talking about the temple in heaven. Remember, God is the temple. The altar of incense was there. The brazen altar was there. All the implements that God commanded Israel to create for the temple or the tabernacle on earth are already in heaven. And so this angel comes from that temple, the temple of heaven from God's presence. And he comes 
And we assume since he's coming from the temple of heaven that he's coming from God's presence because that's where God resides. So this angel comes out of heaven from God's presence and then we imagine or assume that this message is from God the Father because that's what angels do. Angels bring God's message and accomplish God's work. And he turns to Christ and he's not commanding him. He's saying it's the Father's will at this point and it is time to reap the earth. The earth is ripe and it is time to reap. And so the angel says, the time has come. The, the compl- everything that has to happen has happened, and people are ready to be reaped in sin. Now, if you go way back in history, all the way to the book of Daniel, okay, Daniel saw some visions from heaven as well, and he was told about the time of the Gentiles. Jesus referred to this time. It started with King Nebuchadnezzar. When Jerusalem was conquered by Gentiles, it was taken over by Gentiles, and Jerusalem was under the control of Gentiles. That's called the time of the Gentiles. It still is under the control of the Gentiles to this day. Okay? You, you know, I know Israel has some control of part of Jerusalem, but the majority of Jerusalem is controlled by Arabs, by Muslims, and those are Gentiles. And so Gentiles rule over Jerusalem during this time of the Gentiles. This, what we're seeing here, is the end of the time of the Gentiles. That fullness of time has come. And Jesus is about to reclaim not just Jerusalem, but his throne, the throne of David, which sits in Jerusalem, where he will rule for the thousand years on earth. So the angel is saying, the time is now. It's time to reap sinners off the earth to set up the kingdom. That's the message that he's given him. And he uses this phrase, the harvest is ripe. Now, some commentators believe that this harvest, the first one here in chapter 14, is talking about Christ separating out his true believers, the saints. Now, remember, there's people who will believe during the tribulation. So there will be saints on the earth at this time. Some commentators think this is the first part of the harvest. This has to be God's saints, you know, the followers of Christ, that Christ is going to separate and hold and keep so that they're not destroyed in the coming judgment? I don't agree with that, honestly, and I'll tell you why. Because there's others who say that this is talking about a general harvest of separating the tares out for judgment. That's why I call this the reaping of the tares. And I'll give you the reason why. The word ripe tells me everything I need to know here. Now, in English, it just says ripe. In fact, it's the same word that's used later on in the chapter. In the Greek, the word ripe here and later on are different words. This word ripe, actually, is the Greek word zeraino, and what it means is desiccated, shriveled, or dried up. Now, anybody who's done any kind of gardening will recognize this word. If you grow tomatoes and you leave the tomatoes on the vine too long, you don't pick them. They get to that nice, ripe, red state, and then you forget to pick them, and then you go back a couple weeks later, and what do they look like? Rotten. They start to shrivel up. Okay, we experience this in our garden in Michigan. Every year we would plant this huge crop of green beans, and we'd pick them several times through the summer. But then, you know, after 60 quarts of green beans, you're like, oh, green beans again. And so it's like, okay, we don't pick, we're not picking the beans anymore. But you go out later in the fall... And the bean plants are still there, and there's still beans on them, but those beans are all shriveled up. They're not edible anymore, okay? Now, you can harvest those, and we did, to get seeds. 
But this is talking about a state of fruit in which it's rotten. It's no longer usable. It's beyond application anymore. And so basically it's not worth anything except to throw away. Put it in the compost pile. Okay, that's what we did with our stuff like that. And so this word ripe, when the angel says the world is ripe for harvest, it is rotten, it is dried up, it is desiccated or shriveled up. It is beyond redemption. They are confirmed in their sin. There is no more that is going to come to Christ. And so they are at the point of what Jesus said, unusable. Okay? They have confirmed themselves that they are the weeds. They are the unusable product of the garden. Now, let me share with you Jesus' reference to the tares, the wheat and the tares. Remember in Matthew chapter 13, he gave this parable about the wheat and the tares. And I'm going to read it very quickly. He says, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together the tares first, and bind them in bundles and burn them, but then gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus in that parable said the tares are going to be gathered first. The wheat will be gathered second. When Jesus comes back at his second coming, obviously the church will be gone already in heaven with him, and we'll come back with him in his kingdom. But on the earth, the tares are gathered first, and then the wheat is gathered and brought into his kingdom. This is that first harvest of the tares. Now, just so we understand what we're talking about, tares are weeds. Okay, I've, I've experienced this. I understand. It's amazing, and I believe it's part of the curse. When you plant a garden, whenever you plant some good vegetable or fruit, more than likely there is a weed that exists that looks almost exactly like it that grows right there with that vegetable. Okay? I've, I've, I've experienced it with carrots. I used to plant carrots all the time. I loved fresh carrots. And you plant the carrots, and you see the little plants start to, to come up out of the ground, and then after a couple of weeks, you realize, hey, not all of them look the same. And there's this little plant that looks like carrots for the first couple of weeks, but as it gets bigger, you realize that it's growing faster than everything else, and it's not a carrot, but it looks similar until it gets bigger. Tares are the same thing. Now, this, what Jesus called tares, is actually what's termed darnel. It's a real weed, okay? It's called the bearded darnel, if you want the Latin lolium temulent temulentum. Okay, there you go. You got your Latin for the day. But that's this weed that Jesus is talking about. It's a real thing, and it looks a lot like wheat. Even until it matures, it's very difficult to determine the difference. I want to read you what Fawcett's Bible Dictionary describes this darnel as. It says, at first, it's impossible to distinguish the wheat or barley from the darnel until the wheat's ears are developed. When the thin, fruitless ear of the darnel is detected. So it's only by their fruit you shall know them. Jesus said that. Perfect example. 
Its root, too, is so intertwined with that of the wheat that the farmer cannot separate them without plucking them both up. So the roots tangle together with the wheat, and that's why Jesus said, no, don't pull it out. You'll pull everything out. Leave it. I'll do the separating. The seed is like wheat, but smaller and black, and when mixed with wheat flour, and if you ingest it, it causes dizziness, intoxication, and paralysis. This is not something you want to eat, folks. It's important that it be separated out, and it's a very common thing that grows almost all over the world and mixes itself with wheat. Now, Jesus said, the devil, you know, the enemy has sown this on purpose. I mean, and we can take that application a hundred different ways. You know, we can look at Christians, real Christians versus fake Christians. We can look at people causing damage within the church, all of these applications. Here, Jesus is designating these tares, these, this first harvest for judgment, okay? And that's what the angel is saying. We now see the difference. They've confirmed themselves in the eyes of men even, who's real and who's not, and it's time to harvest these weeds out of the world. And so Jesus tells them, or, or Jesus is about to reap. And in verse 16, if you keep reading, it says, And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, how long does it take for Jesus to do the reaping? I mean, it's a very simple statement. It's just one, two, thrust, and it's over. See, Jesus doesn't have to work very hard at this because he's all-powerful. And when Jesus is ready to judge, to reap the harvest, it doesn't take much effort and it doesn't take much time. And as we'll see, this is a picture of the coming judgments, what we call the vile or bold judgments that are going to be released at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. When these judgments are released, it's like boom, 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 seven right in a row. And the seventh one culminates with the return, the physical second coming return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But these judgments are these vile judgments, this reaping of the earth, just general reaping of sinners in the earth at this time period that Jesus is going to accomplish, is going to be accomplished through the final judgments of these vile judgments that he's going to release. Now, it doesn't mean they're all going to be killed immediately. It means they're going to experience the judgment of God while they're still alive. This is the final judgment of Jesus Christ while they're still alive on this earth. And then they will be cast into torment forever and ever. But these, or this judgment is those seven vile judgments against sinners in general on the earth. That's this reaping. And as I said, it will culminate with Christ returning to the earth. And we know, if you know anything about Revelation or about eschatology, when Jesus comes back to the earth at his second coming, it will be in the context of what I call the judgment of Armageddon. Most people refer to it as the battle of Armageddon. I'm not going to call it a battle, because I'll show you why in just a minute. But that's what we see in verse 17. This is the second reaping. The first one is general sinners. God, Jesus reaping general sinners. The second one is what I call the judgment of Armageddon. Look at verse 17. He says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So we have the first vision, Jesus Christ sitting on the cloud. The angel comes and says, reap, it's time to reap. And Jesus reaps 
the earth. Now we have another angel coming out from the temple, same place the first one came out, but then a third angel, and this one comes out from the altar. The second angel has a sickle just like Jesus Christ did, and it's the third angel who instructs the second angel to thrust in the sickle and reap the grapes this time. It's the grapes on the vine that are ripe for reaping, and so we have, uh, again, the second reaping here. Now, I want to look at these angels very quickly because this gives us an indication of what we're looking at and what this is talking about. So it says the angel with a sickle comes out from heaven. Now, he comes from the presence of God. He comes from the temple of heaven. So that means he comes from the presence of God, right? He's instructed by an angel that comes from the altar. And it describes this angel as he who has power over fire. Now, the reference here, if he's coming from heaven and there's an altar in heaven, we've already read about this altar. Go all the way back to chapter 6. And in the fifth seal, we saw the martyrs praying from under the altar of God. That's the altar of incense. Asking God, how long, God, do we have to wait before you take vengeance upon them that have committed this evil against us? This is the answer to that prayer. God's judgment is about to come against those specifically who were the ones that instigated the killing and persecution of God's people. Okay? Not sinners in general. That's the first reaping. Look at how he describes this. He says... um, Verse 18, another angel came from the altar, which had, had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to come, I'm sorry, to him that had sh- the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. This is specific judgment. This is a specific event that will happen at the end of the tribulation period. And we know that this is a different event because I already told you in verse 19 when it says that, um, I'm sorry, the verse 18 at the end when it says, for her grapes are fully ripe, it's a different word than the first ripe that we read in verse 15. The first ripe in verse 15 means it's dried, it's withered out, it's beyond use, burn it up, okay? It's what's left over, the weeds that nobody can use. This means at its prime, fully ripe. So it's a different word. So we're not talking about the same event talked about in two different ways. This is a different event. It's it's literally part of the end reaping, but it's a specific reaping that we're going to see. And I want you to understand the context again. We're at the end of the tribulation. Who is it that has perpetuated such evil and persecution and even execution of believers during the tribulation period? Well, it starts with Satan. We know that. But through Satan, we have the Antichrist and the false prophet that are leading the world in false religion in a one-world government. And that one-world religion, as well as the one-world government, has taken a stance against all of those who will follow God. So it's the government of the world. That whole system 
that Satan has, has raised up to accomplish his will in his mind on the earth at that time. And so this reaping is against that system. But it leans toward the military and political powers of the world at this point because those are the ones that literally carry out these executions. Who is it that's going to be gathered together at the time when Christ comes back against the people of God that Christ will come back and destroy? It'll be the armies of the world. The armies of the Antichrist will be gathered together. The prophet Joel already spoke about this, and I want you to read what Joel said because this is almost a perfect echo and revelation of what Joel said. In Joel chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Joel says, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You see the the similarity between prophet Joel and what John hears in Revelation here? This is God's words. It's not, oh, there just happened to be a prophet who said the same thing. No, God spoke through Joel, and God's speaking the same words here through the angel. This is the event that God is talking about. And so the angel thrusts in the sickle and gathers the vine and the grapes of the earth, and they're cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, obviously, this is judgment. We can't see it any other way. The first one, there's questions about because it doesn't say. It just says Christ reaped the earth, and then it moved on. But again, that word ripe tells us a lot. And if we look at what Scripture has told us and what Christ taught before that, I think we can come to the right conclusion there. Here it's pretty clear. Okay, this is the reaping of the judgment of Armageddon, as I call it. It's a reference to Armageddon. And it's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 4. All right, the prophet Isaiah said this, Who is he that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, or stained garments from Basra? I'm going to stop there for just a second. Remember we talked about Basra, Petra, the, the very possible place of refuge that God prepared for his remnant? I'll keep reading. Who is he that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is that glory, I'm sorry, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. This is the prophet Isaiah saying, who is this? He comes from Basra. He's got stained garments. He's got great strength. He's glorious in appearance. And it says that he speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. I'm sorry, that's, that's the answer that Jesus gives him in verse 3. He says, I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? So Isaiah asks, why are your garments stained? He recognizes this as Jesus Christ who is robed in a white raiment. That is how he's described over and over and over. But Isaiah says, why are your garments stained red? In verse 3, Jesus gives the answer. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, the people, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled on my garments, and it will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. That is prophetic of Christ's second coming. When he comes to the earth, there will be all the armies of the earth gathered together to fight against his people, to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's their intent. And Jesus will come at exactly the right moment, and he will start at Petra, Basra, and go up the valley and trample the enemies of God, all of these armies of the world, literally, 
destroying all of them. Now, we call it the judgment of Armageddon because there's really no battle. These armies are going to have absolutely no chance. They can't fight the Son of God. And so they'll be destroyed, standing there. So this description, and, and you, can read, you can read about this. When you read in Revelation 19, Christ again is described as being dressed in a garment dipped in blood. We'll get to that as we get to chapter 19. This is the picture that we see here. This is that reaping. The armies of the world are gathered against God and his people, and Christ will literally trample them and destroy them. It says in, in chapter 19 that he will destroy them from, with a sword that comes out of his mouth. So this description of the reaping of grapes at the end of chapter 14 here in Revelation is the fulfillment of the prophecy of, of Isaiah chapter 63. It's the same event. It's the same event that Joel wrote about in chapter 3. Verse 20. Here, here's the part that people go, oh, we've got to figure this out, okay? Verse 20 says, the blood will be up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, in our terms, that's about 200 miles. 200 miles. Now, is it true that there will be millions of people in those armies that will be killed? Absolutely. Is it true that the blood, their blood will run four to five feet deep? Well, that's what it says. But commentators are, don't agree on this either. Okay? I'm going to take it for what it says. Four to five feet deep, up to the horse's bridles. Some have said, well, that means that as he kills the people, the blood is going to splash four to five feet. Others have said that means it will pool. There'll be so much blood because of this carnage that it will pool in puddles four to five feet deep. Okay, I don't know what the right answer is. The Bible says it will be up to the horse's bridles. I think we can get a good picture of what kind of carnage this is going to create on the earth. One warrior, the Son of God, against the millions of the armies of the world. And they will be destroyed, literally, physically killed, with their blood flowing freely down through this valley. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be a grisly and gory scene of massacre. It's not going to be a battle. It's going to be a massacre that comes at the judging hand of Jesus Christ. What about the 200 miles? There's a series of valleys that runs from um, Basra, what we call Basra today, or Petra. It's that city that's carved out of rocks. It's been there for thousands of years. It's down in southern, or, or in Jordan, south of Israel. But um, if you go on Google Maps and just Google this and say, how far is it from Jerusalem to Petra? About 150 miles. You go, okay, well, 150 miles, that's not 200 miles. Now, some commentators say this 200 miles is Roman miles. In our miles today, it would be about 183 miles or so, roughly. Okay, so between 180 and 200 miles is the distance, but it's only 150 from Jerusalem to Basra. How could this be then that valley or that series of valleys that Christ is going to go and conquer the armies of the world who are coming against those people in the place of refuge? Well, 150 miles is as the crow flies. Google measures distance in straight lines, unless you're traveling. 
If you're traveling, you have to go where it's accessible for humans to travel. And if you follow the valleys from Basra to Jerusalem, it's about 185 miles. And so Christ literally is going to go from Basra up that valley, destroying the entire army of the Antichrist on his way to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he will ascend up the Mount of Olives in victory. And the battle will be over. But that's what Revelation 14 ends with. This victory of Christ over the final armies of the Antichrist. Their final destruction of the earth. Now, as we look at this, we think, well, all right, what, what's, what's the lesson for us? What do we learn out of this? I mean, there's a lot of interesting details. Okay? But I guess it's a, a very simple question that all of us have to ask ourselves. All right, are we ready for God's judgment? Because it's coming. I mean, this, this is not a fairy tale. It doesn't start with once upon a time. This is coming. Okay, now all of us have the opportunity to avoid this judgment. And that's through the blood of Christ. So are we submitted to the power of the blood of Christ and have we surrendered our lives to him as persevering saints as we saw last week? We're going to continue on no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the persecution, no matter what the pushback that we get. Are we going to keep moving forward in Christ? Are we going to be like the 144,000 witnesses? Are we going to be like the ones that Christ sealed on the earth? Because we have been sealed with the Holy Ghost if we are his followers to avoid this judgment. But God's judgment is coming, and anybody who's not in that state is never going to be able to avoid it. And especially those who take a position against God and against his anointed. In this end time, they have no hope. Now, in both of these harvests, these people have no hope. Because they've trusted something other than Jesus Christ. They've followed something other than the Lord of heaven. For their safety, for their provision, For whatever they're looking for, they've trusted in what's available on the earth. They've trusted in the Antichrist, in the end times. They've trusted in the false religion of the world. And they will be reaped in that first harvest. And then those who take a stand, literally, against God in the armies of the world to fight him will be completely destroyed. And there's no hope. So as we read Revelation over and over again, we have to keep asking ourselves, am I going to end up here because I haven't submitted myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, claimed him as Lord, not just I want salvation for a life insurance policy. I want to escape hell, so I'll take the salvation, but you know, don't bother me until I'm dead. Then I want to go to heaven. That's not how it works. And those people who do not submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will be in the middle of all of this. Now, according to Scripture, there will be opportunity to believe in Jesus, to follow him at that point, but you won't escape the wrath of God on earth. You have to go through that, and many will be killed. But we can avoid all of it. We're still before all of this is going to happen. And so God, in his mercy, has given us the opportunity right now to absolutely make sure that we won't be around when this happens.
we'll be in heaven with Jesus Christ already. But that depends on who your faith is in and who you serve now. We're going to stop there as we finish chapter 14. Chapter 15, actually, we will see next week, Lord willing. We will get into the seventh trumpet in the beginning of the seven vials in chapters 15 and 16. And how God protects those who have trusted in him during this time through all of that as well. But how it will affect mankind on the earth and how it's going to be much worse than anything up to that point. So we'll save that for next time. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we just praise you for your word and thank you that you have given us all of this information, this truth from your mind, from your plan, so we know what's going to happen, Lord. There's no way we could understand it otherwise. And so, Lord, as we contemplate and think about all of the things that you've told us are coming, I pray that we would be ready now, that we would submit to you in our spirit, with our lives, so that we can truly be one of your persevering saints in the end. Lord, we look forward to the day that you're going to call us home, but help us to be aware of all of those around us who don't have that hope. And so may we be diligent in bringing in the sheaves before the final harvest comes. Father, thank you again for your word today. May we be doers and not just hearers. May we let the truth become ingrained upon our hearts to change us and mold us more in the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to finish today with uh, hymn number 500. When the roll is called up yonder, it's a song of hope for all of us and joy that are saved. Hopefully, when the roll is called and God and Christ comes back to bring us all to heaven, we